Okay, welcome everybody. Revelation part 8, chapter 20, a continuation of our on the board uh, samples of eschatological views of understanding the preterist view of Revelation 20. But before we do that, I actually had something hit me this morning that's in my laptop. I couldn't even get it printed at Kinko's. It came out so quickly that I'm going to have to get my laptop up here and teach from it for the first half. And then we'll cover probably um, maybe three or four of these. And then we'll have to continue on to next week. But I think those are interesting, but we'll get to it. Let's say, uh, if you haven't been with us, we pray, we sing the Word of God, and we sit in silence, and then we'll get to our study of Revelation chapter 20. Lord, we uh, love you and seek you, and grateful to be here in this building and in this uh, beautiful country, in the state of Utah, beautiful this time of year in spring and summer coming on. We just pray your spirit will be with us, that we can relax in you. We can trust that you have had the victory, uh, whatever, that was a hallelujah in the midst of the prayer, Lord. Uh, that we can trust that you have had the victory and that um, one way or another, whatever view is correct, that you have done it and we can look to you as the author and finisher of our faith. So we pray that we won't lose faith or lose ground coming and studying like this, but that we'll have something to look forward to in our walk, in our daily walk with you throughout the week. We pray for those who are tuning in now and uh, the people who are organizing in different parts of actually the world. We just pray that you'll be with them as uh, we consider uh, the scripture and the things about it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Okay, kind of different. Uh, just at this part, I'm going to sit because this came to me this morning as I was preparing the notes for this afternoon's meet. And uh, you know that we have appealed to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to teach about the resurrection. And we've used chapter 15 to explain what Paul was saying about the resurrection being uh, spiritual versus physical. And many people will use chapter 15 to prove that the resurrection's physical and not spiritual. So it's up to some unique interpretation. And over the week, as you guys I'm sure probably do, when I was studying the Bible, I've worked through, um, you just read through the, if you're doing the New Testament, each book. And I got to Second uh, Corinthians, which happens to me often. And I don't like that book when it starts off. It, it's not the content, it's the way it's written. And whenever I get to it, I'm like, this just doesn't sound like Paul is writing. This sounds like a different writer. It just, the first couple chapters, I'm, I struggle to even get comprehension from it. So as I'm reading it this past few weeks, I'm struggling through the first and second chapter of Second Corinthians. And uh, then I get to the third chapter and something opens up pretty nice. And I say, oh, this is sounding more like Paul. And then I get to the fourth chapter and I'm reading great stuff. Well, then the fifth chapter comes and I... Typically, I guess by the time I get to the fifth chapter in my past, when I get to it, I just say, well, okay, this is just something that I don't fully get, and I haven't really studied like I maybe should. So what I want to do today, as t in support of my view that the resurrection of us is spiritual and not physical, is to go to the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians. If you want to follow along with me, I want to teach through it because I think Paul makes some really clear points here that might be a surprise to you as they were to me. So here we go. Um, first one, verse one. He says, For we know that if our earthly house, so what's our earthly house, of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, talking about temples there, but eternal in the heavens. He says, if this body was dissolved, then we know that we have a building of God, a house that is not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The principle is a spiritual resurrection uh, with a heavenly residence. 
because this, this body can dissolve, but we're going to have uh, heavenly. This is important because it helps support our view of the ongoing nature of the resurrection, which started with Jesus returning and bringing back his kingdom in 70 AD and will continue forevermore until the human race obliterates itself or whatever happens there. The verses that follow, they continue to add to the scriptural truth. So listen to what it says. Verse 2, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. Do you know what he says there? He says, as we're in this body, we walk about and we're groaning, desiring to be clothed with a house which is from heaven. Anything from heaven is spiritual. Everything from heaven is spiritual. That is where that house is going to clothe us. That's the language he uses, is we are in this flesh, which could be dissolved, he says in verse 1, but we go about groaning now and we are in his care and we say, man, I wouldn't mind it if this body goes away. Dissolve it. I know I'm going to be clothed with the heavenly uh, house. And here in verse 2, he says, which is from heaven. We note that the body we desire to be clothed with is not from the ground. Paul doesn't say, and we desire for this body to rise from the ground. It is from heaven. And whatever is heavenly constructed is spiritual. It is not uh, material. So Paul here adds a unique line, verse 3. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. If so be being clothed, we shall not be found naked. We, want, we groan while we walk about this life, but we want to be clothed from what's on heaven that comes from the heavenly realm, but we want to make sure that that covering is sufficient, that it is, covers our nakedness. And this harkens back to Jesus when he gives the parable, when he says, you know, there's my father, uh, there's a father who is going to throw a wedding for his son, and uh, the people who are invited didn't come. They were too busy, so he said, go out into the highways and byways and invite everybody, sig uh, signifying the Gentiles, come into the house, and he says, and, and when they do, then he goes, and then we have the wedding feast, and he says, but the master looks at people and finds someone who's not clothed in the pr proper wedding garment, and he says, listen, get out of here, you, you aren't fit for this. And so this is what Paul is relating to, that in the kingdom you want to be clothed properly. So that when you attend that wedding feast, you're uh, clothed in the way that God wants to clothe those who are his. I think it's interesting. Verse 4, for we that are in this tabernacle, again, he's talking about the body, do groan. We do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed. We don't want to be unclothed in the face of this burden but clothed upon, ready, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. We want what we're groaning in to be swallowed up of, I would add, eternal life. Life, eternal life, synonymous, they're one and the same. So we're groaning in this body, but we're waiting for the time when our mortality will be swallowed up in eternal life. That line, the mortality might be swallowed up in life, is key to our understanding of what can begin to happen here with the regeneration of the spirit in us as we walk and we're spiritually born again. And then we move toward that time when everything will transition to that heavenly realm. So I would say that the physical body again, I mean the resurrection, the resurrected body of heaven 
is just as spiritual as the spiritual rebirth that we experience. That, that's not a tangible thing that we experience. It's the beginning of spirit life in us. We have a rebirth experience. We begin to walk by the spirit. That is a, a, a real thing, but it's not visible. Any more than the body will be clothed with and our mortality will be dissolved and eaten up by that eternal life. And I think he's making that point really clear here. What is key to this occurring? And it's knowing God and his son, which is life eternal. We want to be clothed with eternal life. How does that happen? When you know the Father and the Son. So we know them by the Spirit and through examination of the Word. It leads us more and more to our mortal bodies being swallowed up and being clothed with the heavenly body, which is what I suggest happens at the death of every single person. Um, verse 5, 6, and 7. Now he that has wrought us for the selfsame thing is God. The person who put us in this place is God, who also has given us the earnest of the Spirit. Ask yourself, have you received the earnest of the Spirit? What does that mean? Therefore, we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. While we're in this body walking about groaning, we're absent from the Lord. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's very clear. So when we're in it, we're groaning with the desire to be clothed with that heavenly light, that life. And until that time, we know as we're in this body, we are separate from him fully. And then he says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 7. He just makes that declaration. That's why we groan. That's why we're in this state of distance. We know as we're in misery, so to speak, we're not with him yet. When he says he has, God has wrought this upon us and has given us the earnestness of the Spirit, that word in the Greek is similar to a deposit we make on a home that we want to buy. You understand earnest money, that we want to, uh, we want to give money down on a place. We tell the, the seller we want to buy the house. Here is our earnest money, shows that we're, we're earnest to obtain the property. And if we don't comply, even though our real estate laws today, can, you can, there's a lot of loopholes with that. But the idea is we want this house. If we don't follow through on our desire, you can keep the earnest money. Well, this is, Paul says that God has put a deposit for our future with him in our hearts. He has given us an earnest of the spirit, which tells us our home is not here. And so we go about knowing within us we have a spiritual new life and our home is elsewhere, and we yearn to be clothed with what goes with that home. And, and again, that pertains to my suggestion that that's a spiritual body. So he, said, he ends up by saying we walk by faith, not by sight. So God gives us a down payment of what will be. We don't have the fullness of that. Why? Because we're still in bodies of flesh and bone. And as long as that's the case, we know, as he said, we're absent from the body. I, I mean, we're, uh, we're absent from the Lord because we're present in the physical body. He says at verse 8, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Did you hear what he said? We are willing, as Christians who have the earnest money in us, to be absent from the body, clothed with the heavenly body that he gives us, and which then means to be present with the Lord. 
flesh and blood, blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why we continue to teach a fleshly resurrection is beyond me, but we do. We don't pay attention to these other things. And I gave you the three scriptures that were, uh, were given to me, uh, and we're going to cover those that really confront the idea of a spiritual resurrection, including Job, Isaiah, and we're going to cover those when we get to them probably next week. But in other words, we don't fear death. And uh, in respect to our future homes on high, we would rather be absent from this body and present with the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't love this life enough to always want to be here. There are times when I want to be absent from the body. Just, you know, sometimes it's a simple thing to tie in my shoe, and I'm like, just take me out of here, man. Give me, give me that out of this confined thing I've got. Other people don't feel that way, but sometimes as a Christian, I do. It's at this point Paul says something Christians often miss. He says, wherefore... Wherefore, as a result of all that I've talked about, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Wherefore, in light of everything I've just said, we as Christians labor, and whether we are present or whether we're absent, either one of those situations, we do this because we want to be accepted of him. The word le- uh, labor is philat im e amahi. It's a huge mouthful. And it means you are a friend of dignity. That doesn't mean labor as in um, working labor, sweating labor. That's a different Greek word. But it means that we, are will- that we are friendly with the dignity and honor that's waiting. We have a friendly affinity in our mind with what's waiting. Why, are we, uh, why do we view it that way? Because we have confidence, because of the earnestness of the spirit that's in us, that that is waiting for us. And so we have this idea that we, we philot amaiahamahi, uh, that we are friendly with the honor or dignity that is waiting for us as evidenced by the earnestness of the spirit that God gave us. Wherefore, we are ambitious or zealous of the honor, whether we're here or there, to be accepted of him. This, he's, he's said so much in these first eight verses, nine verses, it blows my mind. So notice that this is the aim, it's the desire, it's the heartfelt inner drive of those who have been given the earnestness of the Spirit. As difficult as it may be, why is this on Paul's heart to write? Why is he writing this? Well, go to verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I realize that a preterist would say that's fulfilled to that audience, and other people would say, well, I still think we do. But nevertheless, he's writing this, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he has done, whether good or bad. The idea is we will all, or at least they will, in the context of it being said, we'll all stand before the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. And what's going to be judged at that point? Everything that was done in that body. Everything that was done in that body. They're in a heavenly body. But everything that was done in that body will be judged, whether good or bad. Done in the corporal body that we walk around and groan in will be judged, or they were judged, depending on your view of Scripture and your eschatology. And so here we see a connection between the actions of what we do in the body in the heavenly future state. There is a judgment that comes as a result of what we've done with our body in this state. And so that's why uh, Paul is bringing all this up. 
And at this point, he brings up something that's a tad bit terrifying. And we kind of miss this. I often miss this idea that's brought up in Scripture. He adds, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. That's what he says. Uh, scripture, I, have to, I didn't look at the Greek on that. I didn't have time. But he says, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we, the apostles, persuade men. But we were made manifest unto God, and I trust also are, I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. He's talking about his, apost his apostleship and what he is doing with the other apostles. We are made manifest of God. We are persuading men to know the terror of the Lord, realizing that in this corporal body that you wander around in, you will come before the judgment seat of Christ. You will be judged of the things you did in your body. And then to me, from what it says in 1 Corinthians, God then rewards you with the heavenly body you'll have forever, the spiritual body in which you will obtain that comes from heaven. So far, that's how I'm seeing these verses in 2 Corinthians 8. So he brings aware, um, hold on for a second. Okay, so then he adds, For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give to you occasion to glory in our behalf. He's talking about his apostleship. These verses don't apply that much. It's a side note that you may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in the heart. Uh, we cover it. And whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be silver, it is for your cause. That's just Paul talking about his duty as an apostle and why they share and what they're doing. We're not commending yourselves. We're not commending ourselves to you, but we're merely trying to show that there's some reason that you can boast in your faith for those who have an appearance of it, but they don't have it from the heart. And that's just a summary of it. All right, and at this point, he moves into a deeper message that was hitting on in verses 1 through 11, and he says something really radical. Hear this. May the Spirit guide, not me, but my view of it is truly radical. For the love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we are all dead. If one died for all, Paul says, then we, he's talking to a Christian audience there in Corinth, then we're all dead. Now I want you to think about this. The love of Christ moves us and motivates us because we judge things this way. What way? That one died for all and we're all dead. Now I want to emphasize the fact that Jesus' death, of course, paid for uh, sin and, and death. It was the part of it to overcome it. But in harmony with other things Paul has said, Christians die with Christ. Christ died for all. We, because he died, are all dead. We're already spiritually dead. It's not talking about that. It's talking about we consider ourselves as followers of Christ dead in the ground with him. That's the imagery he's appealing to. Okay? This is so important to understanding something. So, then if one died for all, we are all dead. If it applies to us today, what are we dead to as followers of Christ? We're dead to our flesh. We're dead to our will over God's will. We're dead to our mind, will, and emotions. We're uh, dead to our ways over God's ways. Before we knew Christ, our ways were, uh, uh, um, took precedent, uh, took precedence, but we're, we are dead to the desires of our body in this world. 
and to everything that made up our former lives, our former lives, we are dead then. How was that pictured in scripture? By Christ dying. If Christ died, he says, then we are all dead. So a Christian has to ask themselves, have I died? Paul doesn't make it a single event. He says, we die daily. So do you die daily to the things that your will and flesh want? That's the image. And one of the reasons Christ died is to show us a model of what we do. We die too. I'm not a believer in Jesus. I'm living it up. My will says do this. I believe on Jesus truly. Guess what happens to me? I die. We all die when you believe on Jesus. Okay? So keep that in mind. How can we live if we have died with Christ? We cannot. That's the point that Jesus died for all. We have then died if we follow him, if he's our king and Lord and master. So herein is the focus to reiterate that we are dead to the former self as Christians. Paul makes that clear. We are not alive. We died with him. We died with him. But also importantly, having died with him, we are also, and here's the important part, here is the important part I want to get to that I took from this, right or wrong. We are all made alive in Christ, as evidenced by what in him? If we are all dead in Christ, evidenced by the fact that he died for all, what are we, what, how are we evidenced to be alive? Through his resurrection. So we die daily with Christ, but we're raised to new life. He was resurrected. I, I would suggest that his resurrection physically from the grave with his body is a type for Christians on how to live in this world today. That it was not his material raising that means anything to us. It was the fact that he died. We all died with him. And he rose to new life as we do when we follow him. We rise to new life. Now, do we rise to new fleshly life? New resurrected, actual resurrected life? No. The only thing he resurrected is our, is our new man coming out of the grave. But that's a new birth. That's not a resurrection yet. So Christ's life models in his death the fact that we should die to our own will and his resurrection that we should live to him. It's not a picture. This, and I'm just trying to address the point that people say, listen, Jesus rose from the grave. We're going to rise from the grave. That was not the reason that he rose from the grave for our physical benefit. That, it's just another argument I'm bringing to the table that I think is found here if you study it because I think that's what he, Paul is trying to say. He was physically resurrected to complete and fulfill the model of all of us who live in the flesh as Christians. We die with him to our former self. We are raised to new life. It has no connection to us and the physical resurrection, which is obviously spiritual. So with that picture of his death and resurrection to the mortal Christian life, let's read on. Verse 15, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. In that passage, he ties the rising again to us not therefore living unto ourselves. It's in verse 15 right there. He proves the point I just made that he died for all, that they which live should not live henceforth unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So we have the model of how to be a Christian in and through his death and resurrection. Um, 
I think that's the model. He died for all, and we died with him as converts to him. He rose again so that we no longer live unto ourselves in the flesh on earth as Christians. That's the model we get from, from and that's why Paul in other places talks about being buried with him, but rising to new life. And that rising to new life is a spiritual rising that we experience through the type of model Jesus gave literally when he came for the house of Israel and died and rose. Verse 16, to add something even more radical, 16. Blew my mind, that's why I'm doing this. Wherefore, as a result of everything I've said, he says, wherefore, henceforth, from this point forward, he says, no, we know man after the flesh. Know that we do not know another person after their flesh. Okay? Uh, after the ways of the world. We don't know people by their human ways. Uh, yea, in fact, he says, yea, in fact, though we have known Christ after the flesh. Listen to this. Though we have known Christ after the flesh. And I think that means though we've known him as a human being. And though we, he, we knew him as the worldly Messiah. And though we knew him through his physical death and his resurrection from the dead. In fact, though we have known Christ after this flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. We don't know him anymore that way. That is not how we are to know him. We're not to know him. People say, what happened to Jesus' body? It doesn't matter anymore. That's what he's saying. Though we knew him once in the flesh, after the flesh, meaning after our flesh we understood him, yet now henceforth know more him do we know that way? That's a radical passage. Take it, churn on it. Say he's wrong. Say it doesn't make sense. You read that and you tell me what that means because to me he's saying exactly what we're talking about. That everything has a physical start, but everything has a spiritual after part. He taught that. And, and, and that's what Christ emblematically did here for us. We died with him. He physically did it. We spiritually die. I'm not spiritually die. We die in our flesh and we rise to new life through him. And he says, we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. I, I think now, now uh, some people could say, well, what that's talking about is we don't see him in the flesh anymore. Exactly. We don't see him in the, in the flesh anymore. How do we know him? We don't know him through the flesh anymore. We, we, we know him through the spirit. That's how you know Christ. And so what's happening here is we have a diminishing of a focus on the fleshly things of this world, and we are looking for the heavenly thing. I think it's amazing. So verse 17, he says, therefore, where there's a therefore, there's a wherefore. And he says a therefore. All right. He's done that three times so far. He's, he's, building, a, he's building a system here for you to see things. Therefore, in the application of this information to you Christians, therefore, if any man be in Christ, that's a spiritual line there. You're not in Christ materially. You're not in Christ in any way but by the Spirit which, where there is liberty. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That, that harkens back to the body being old and groaning to a new body that comes from heaven. All of this is tied in with that theme. All the old things are passed away. I would suggest when we come to know Christ, we die automatically with him. We're raised to new life and we begin to know everything spiritually. And the material things of Christ are going away. All things are new in Christ. He just says in the two verses before, listen, we don't know Christ anymore through the flesh. We don't know him any way, shape or form relative to that. 
We know him spiritually. Therefore, he says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, and all things um, are uh, all things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Um, we were once fleshly and led by the Spirit. Uh, now, where we saw life through the lens of our minds and our wills and our bodies and our emotion, we now see existence through the eternal spectrum and through the Spirit. What did Jesus say? John 6, 63. It is the Spirit that quickens, ready, the flesh profits nothing. Now, if you say the flesh profits nothing, why do we say it's going to come out of the ground and we can have the flesh again? It's, and if it's not the flesh, folks, then it's a spiritual body. I'm not saying we don't have bodies. Understand me. I'm not saying we don't have spiritual bodies. We certainly do. But it's just not that corrupt flesh that's been in the grave for, uh, forever and ever. Uh, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And then listen to how he wraps these verses up, which goes hand in hand, and we'll wrap it up, and we'll go back to the board and what we've been discussing. Listen to what he says, and he uses words that I've been using. Not really, I, I, I didn't know or remember that he used these words so many times in these next three verses. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, ready, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, in other words, here is what that means, that God was in Christ, something emphatically we state, reconciling the cosmos to himself not imputing their trespasses unto them. Usually when Paul is talking to the body or to believers, it's us, it's we. He shifts here in 19 and he says, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their, the world's trespasses to them, not. And has committed unto us the word of reconciliation, meaning the apostles. This is radical stuff. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Sin for who? The whole world. He says it there in verse 19. He has made him to be sin for the whole world who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There is the, the beauty of the gospel. It was a worldwide reconciliation. And that's the, the, the ministry of reconciliation. That chapter is really important. But I think the first part of it really spoke, speaks to the idea of the heavenly resurrection versus the physical resurrection that we've been talking about. Okay, we have been in chapter 20 of Revelation. And in chapter 20, it's the a sink or swim chapter on whether uh, the, what the millennium looks like, what the resurrection looks like, if preterism, full preterism is true or not. And as we've studied it, I've come to a point where I discovered that there are 16 subcategory views of full preterism out there, and they're probably believed by one person to five people throughout the world each. <laughs> you'll, you'll see that as I give you the author's name of these different ones. But as I present more of these to you today, 
Listen to some of the concepts that these views have because they are remarkably sound with Scripture and they bring things to the table that I don't think uh, we've considered. You may have considered them, but I certainly haven't because I didn't know they were even there until I read up on this. Okay. On the board, uh, I have written the views. I've only given, because I didn't want to write them all out. The, uh, can you see the board from there? Okay, uh, I didn't want to write them all out, so I just gave the initials. And then over here to the right, it gives all the ways that what I'm going to show you, how each of those views to the left differentiate from each other relative to the rapture, relative to the millennium, relative to resurrection, parousia, which means the second coming to most people. It can be a little... Salvation, is it ongoing still or not in these views? Does this view lead to universalism, which... The preterist view has a tendency to lead to a universalist view, yes or no. What continues on today according to the view that we'll uh, mention? And then the unique characteristics of each view. So, uh, we left off, we finished covenant eschatology last week, so we're going to hit up the essential body view, EBV view. Taffy Boyo, you know Taffy, she's the one who came up with the essential body view. Now, you guys might be saying, McCraney, you're choking us with information about Revelation, and it is endless, and that's my point. I hope you have understood that by now, that you, we wanted to study it. We're going to study it from as many angles as possible. We're going to center in on the angle that seems to be supported by secular history and by a sound understanding of a context of the Old Testament prophecies and the New. And we've centered in on, it's, it's, it's the preterist view to me. I mean, we've really proven that when we've gotten into Josephus and Cassius Dio and these other people who have written Tacitus um, about the history, and maybe they were all liars and everything, but so far I've come to the point where I'm a preterist, and Revelation 20 will decide if I'm a full preterist or not, and thus far I've entered into the realm of full preterism. So now we have 16 different views within preterism of how to understand everything to the right. If you go through this series with us, and I know many of you are at home and some of you guys are here uh, live, if you go through this series with us, I hope you're realizing that overriding all of this is faith and love. I hope you understand that that's the basics of all of this. And I don't think anyone's doing it this way, and we're doing it to show it's ridiculous. I mean, just what I just covered in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5 could be debated by scholars and talked about for a year. And the whole point is to show we don't become lawyers and we don't become haters of views and dogmatists. I'm just presenting and we'll see. Okay, so the Taffy view, EBV. Um, it allows the resurrection language in scripture, including body, flesh, grave, mortality, dust, corruption, grave, raised up, made alive, to speak for its place in history. EVB propose, proposes that this is really interesting and, it, and it's something that makes a great deal of sense that the reason why God created Adam and Abraham was to bring in a holy priesthood of people that would oversee the rest of human, humanity and uh, would be ministers to the spirits who worship God in heaven. And while this purpose was thwarted 
when Adam disobeyed, it was accomplished through Abraham because of his obedience. And this explains why Scripture becomes Israel-centric. Israel becomes the focal point. They become the holy priesthood over the whole world, so to speak. They're the ones offering up sacrifice, etc. after the fall. It's through Israel that God promised both the oracles and the Messiah to come forward and bring the world back to himself. The EBV view proposes that in and through the nation of Israel, including Gentiles who were adopted into it, they will serve as priests in God's holy temple on high. That's why the 144,000 are the priests that we've talked about in Revelation. They are the officiators of this kingdom of which God is reconciling to himself. That adds a new twist in things we haven't brought up before. The nature and time of the second coming, physical, 70 AD, and it proposes that the parousia was the end of redemptive history, and it happened precisely when God wanted it to, when he had the culmination of all the priests and holy righteous men, 144,000, for Christ to take as his own and now enter into the Holy of Holies in the temple on high, not made with hands, where God dwells, and they serve over creation as priests and intermediaries over Christ's kingdom. That's what the uh, EBV view says. The nature and time of the resurrection, it submits that bodies of the saints were raised from the grave and brought before Christ's judgment at the parousia. They believe that the bodies of those come from the grave, came from the grave. We talked about Matthew last week of how that happened, and we gave a really good explanation, I think, of what happened there and what didn't. Um, I'll skip through that. The nature and time of the rapture suggests that... Uh, I can't understand that part. And nature and time of the millennium, the number 12,000 EBV proposes that the number 1,000 was used symbolically through the book of Revelation. I would agree with that. Most preterist scholars agree 1,000 was symbolic. And because it related to a time when the saints were beheaded, that time for Christ, it could not have started before uh, Christ's 30 AD. So they limit it then to Jesus Christ 30 A.D. around to 70 A.D. And they say that it is a 40-year millennium, which is the way most preterists interpret that. Ongoing salvation, no. There's not an ongoing salvation necessary. The EBV says, listen, God collected up his priests and his 144,000. He took them up to heaven and there is no longer for men and women to be saved, here's the deal, because all have been reconciled to God. When scripture talks about being saved in the New Testament, it was Jesus and his apostles telling the early church Christians, believe on him and be saved from the coming wrath. It had nothing to do with being saved to God's kingdom. Every situation of being saved was believe on him, confess with your mouth, which is why Romans 10 says that. And by doing that, you're showing all the Jews and Romans around you that you're a Christian. You will be saved at the end with Christ coming. So they take the idea of soteriology or salvation straight out of what the Bible, the New Testament says and says, it's not about a spiritual being saved from hell. It's about being saved from the wrath to come. Why do they teach it that way? Because they say Christ has saved 
the world in terms of afterlife, reconciled all the world to God, but he has not made everybody sons and daughters. And so the EBV says, this is how you have to understand it. And I think there's something uniquely interesting to that when we read about uh, passages relative to salvation. I don't say I agree with it, but I think it's really interesting. I've always wondered why their talk about being saved, being saved, confess with your mouth and you'll be saved. And it seems to point to not being destroyed when the end comes upon them, as John the Baptist said would. Uh, what continues today? There is a continued deliverance from wickedness in Christ for those who are his sons and daughters. It's important not to confuse what was required for God to create a holy priesthood before his throne and being accountable to our maker. There's a difference. So what we're reading about is him gathering from the house of Israel at the meridian of time, Jesus gathering his saints, which we've read about in Revelation, taking them up at his coming, having his priests in line, having the 12 pillars under the foundations of heaven, the 12 apostles there, and now he governs with his own over this whole world and that they were saved from destruction, and that's how they see it. The unique characteristics uh, are they talk about a sanctified biological substance. It's very unique, and I'm so unique, I'm not going to spend the time to explain it. You can go and read about the... EV free, EB free, whatever it is. All right, evangelical preterism, that's the next one, EV preterism. They believe that the parousia was the effectual time of Jesus' presence on earth. And the nature and time of the resurrection was 70 AD. All those saints residing in Hades at that time went to heaven in their glorified immortal bodies. The nature and time of the rapture, 70 AD. And the nature and time of the millennium, it ended at 70 AD. And is salvation ongoing today? Yes, it is. Is, there, is it universalism? No, it's not. What continues on today? Man's sinful nature and his need for salvation, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. God's role in sustaining the universe and salvation and in judgment of nations and individuals. And the unique characteristics of this view Fulfillment of biblical prophecy enhances our understanding of classical Christianity. It does not detract from it. They say, we specifically reject aberrant doctrines of millennialism, especially dispensationalism, fetism, nominalism, antinomianism, liberalism, legalism, and universalism. We specifically and forcefully reject errors of hyper-preterism, also known as full-preterism. They do not like that in the... Uh, charismatic preterist view. Um, and then that will leave it at that. Fulfilled revelation theology. This is heady stuff. Um, in fact, it's so heady, I'm not going to cover it. It's just too heady. There, I mean, you have to have a, a abacus to understand it. Full revelation Bible view. Literal coming of Jesus when he was incarnated and born on earth. That was his coming. After his death and resurrection, he ascended to heaven, literal, but it also means he got all authority in heaven and earth, and he exalt, was exalted far above the heavens and filled all things. At 70 AD, he came to Israel prophetically and historically and destroyed Jerusalem and its temple, which we said would happen. Since Christ's incarnation, he is present on earth. That's the important thing to remember with this view. Since his incarnation, he's present. 
He came. He hasn't really left. He is present. As with the Holy Spirit came, as with his return, as with it continuing on today, he is present here on earth. Time of the resurrection, there are two kinds of resurrection. Both are physical in this view. The contrasts are not physical and spiritual, but natural and spiritual. And they go into a whole lot on that end. The time of the rapture for Israel only, 70 AD, for believers in Christ at any time, any time you have your personal rapture. Nature and time of the millennium, a literal 1,000 years. Uh, from David to 70 AD, that's how they count the 1,000 years, by the way. Uh, ongoing salvia, salvation, yes, ongoing salvation for everyone who believes in the finished work of Christ. The view says that according to prophecy, salvation is for Israel only, including Gentiles. Jesus came to save his people from their sin. Christ died for our sins, Israel only. Resurrection at the last day for Israel only. And this is not unique. I mean, there are Christians who see that and they say, we are adopted into Israel, as Paul talks about. So that's how you cover that base. But salvation was for the Jews, and that's meaning salvation in the heavenly sense. Universalism, not universalism. Everyone needs to believe in Christ. What continues today? Uh, immortality to all who believe in the gospel of Christ. No eternal hellfire or eternal torment for unbelievers. Everyone who does not believe dies a biological death and rises no more. Now that is in contradistinction to Jesus' teaching who says there's a damnation, uh, a resurrection of damnation and a resurrection to eternal life. So that one kind of goes against what Jesus said. The unique characteristics of the view is you have to b rightly divide the word when you read it and understand what is talking about Israel and what is talking about believers today after 70 AD for uh, there on after. Mark and I were just having that discussion. They believe you can articulate between the differences between what was written for them and what's applicable to us. And uh, let's go to Israel only, which is similar. We'll almost get there. Literal historical parousia in 70 AD. And uh, time of the resurrection, individual physical resurrection of all dead and living descendants of Abraham up to and including the apostolic generation. Nature and time of the rapture, individual physical resurrection on the last day. Nature and time of the millennium, literal 1,000 years, which represents the duration of the Davidic rule leading up to the parousia. Many full preterists believe that the millennium is a literal 1,000 years, but it begins with David's rule, and it ends at the end of that age, which was 70 AD, and they have the math to give you those 1,000 years, versus the spiritualizing of the idea that it occurred in a 40-year period of time. So there you have some variances when people say, well, what about the millennium? There are preterists who believe it was actually a thousand years from David to uh, Jesus' return in 70 AD. And there are those who say it was 40 years and they say it's representational of all time. <coughs> Is salvation ongoing with them? No, there's no universal salvation. Hence, it's, it's Israel only. So bottom line, the Israel only view is saying we're reading a book that's a history of God dealing with Israel. And it happened to them, it was for them, it's done with them, and everything else, uh, you know, uh, let me see. There, it, there is no anything else. That, that's the Israel-only view. If you want to be adopted into Israel, as Paul says, that's still up in the air. 
according to them. There are no assumptions made about the Bible applying to anyone today. That is part of Israel only's view. Literal millennial reign preterism. Siege of 70 AD, physical appearance of chariots in the clouds as recorded in Josephus, prove that it occurred then. Nature and time of the resurrection, first resurrection, spiritual, 70 AD, seven, second resurrection, spiritual, 1096, and perpetual upon the physical death of every individual thereafter. So they believe that as every individual dies, there's a resurrection that occurs at that time, spiritual for them. That is not unique. Um, the 78 day spiritual change in relationship and the rapture is a twinkling of an eye, literal in thousand years from 71 AD to 1096. This is the second time they mention the year 1096. Why? Because that's the year of the first crusade. They believe the first crusade was the wrapping up of the millennial reign of Christ on earth. Is salvation ongoing today? Yes. Conti uh, continued salvation of obedient believers. Is this universalism? No. It's limited to those who are in Christ. What continues on today? The expansion of God's kingdom, both here and on earth. I think there's something to that. The unique characteristic of the view is that the literal thousand-year millennium started in 70 A.D. and went out to uh, 10 whatever A.D. And how, what time are we at right now? 25 after. Five minutes. We'll do one more. The narrative critical fulfilled view. Tired yet? He's tired. <laughs> I'm tired. Wait. Then there's the natural to spiritual view, which this was uh, authored by Jen Fishburn. In the natural to spiritual view, I completely agree with the things that she says in that we have a natural view of Scripture that was occurring there materially, and we have a spiritual view that applies to ourselves uh, today. And I agree with this uh, insight from a full preterist of how to understand Scripture. I'm not going to go into them. I'm just going to read the titles because we're out of time. So I don't have to do this more next week. And, uh, and then after the natural spiritual view, I finish my notes. You can go read about the other ones if you want. And just to uh, list them out for you, if you're interested at home, uh, after the natural spiritual view, we have the perpetual millennium preterism. We have the post-apocalyptic view. We have the preterist idealist view. We have the synthesis eschatology preterist idealist view. And we have the temporal ecclesia theory. And again, to show that when it comes to explaining the millennium, the resurrection, the parousia, and how God is working upon the world since Revelation 19 is over, uh, it just goes to show you there's a lot of different opinions. All right, we're going to wrap that one up, and I promise we are going to finish Revelation 20 next week. We will finish it. We'll have 21 and 22, and Revelation will be put into the proper place. Oh, wait, who's Arvana? You. Any comments or questions? Um, and just to, just to let you know, Elaine... I mentioned Job and the scripture you brought up. I'm going to cover that next week as well because that uh, passage and, and two others are really important to understanding more about the spiritual versus the uh, physical resurrection. Okay, no other questions? Oh, there's a newcomer here who has a question. I've never seen you before.
Hi, Sean. You're so funny. Um, so I really like your teaching on the, I can't think today. It's been a long week. Today. Long day. Um, uh, resurrection. That's the word I'm looking for. Because I always thought that it was physical. Especially Most people do. Especially You're not when I came from Mormonism. Definitely Mormonism. And so your teaching on that has really uh, changed my view. I'm looking for something. Was 2 Corinthians 5 helpful or, or enlightening to you, Patrick? What we covered when I sat down and read? It, when you sat down with your cup and the computer, I thought you were in a coffee shop teaching the Word of God. But, it was, uh, but it was very, very enlightening. Awesome. Um, now, while everything, while Patrick's looking that up, while everything has been fulfilled, the flood has not been fulfilled. <laughs> the flood of Noah is coming back. <laughs> I had a question for you, but I... All right, we'll let that one go till next week. I had a question, but I looked up the scripture, and it doesn't make sense according to my question, so I must have wrote it down wrong. It's all right, brother. But love you, Sean. Love you too, my brother. Anything else? Okay, let's pray and get in our boats. Lord, we, uh, we thank you, and uh, we just pray that you'll help us to now back off and let these things sink in and roam around in the brain and heart. But when we look at other believers and we look at people who can use the word and we're moved by the Spirit to speak, that we do so in love and in faith, and that we let that faith and love abide in our lives. We look forward, Lord. We've appreciated the information that's come as our study of Revelation but as the teacher here, you know, today, I look forward to it at wrapping up and, uh, and, and having an end to it so that we can move on to things of faith and things of the Christian walk, which uh, are focused on our love. We don't naturally love other people. It just doesn't, it just, and we love our family and we love people who, who make us happy, but it's just not a natural thing, Lord, for us to just love other people, and especially with their warts and their annoyances and their entitlements. And so we gather together to learn to love better through the example of your son. So we pray that all of this will amount to that in us somehow as we exit and go out and be Christians to our neighbors and live the Christian life and walk in faith. We pray for Mike and his brain uh, bleed and stroke, healing and peace for Annette, comfort and peace. Her cancer has spread. She is not treatable. And that is uh, wrapping up for uh, our sister Annette. We pray that your spirit will be with her for Phyllis extraordinary pancreatitis and upcoming surgery for it. Robert healing, peace, comfort, cancer in his liver and lymphoma. Diane with kidney stones. Diana continued healing with her bodily ailments and getting old. Praise, praise you God publicly for healing and the continued strength of Mary in uh, her operation. We pray that you will uh, look over those who uh, aren't on this list for whatever reason and whatever thing they're struggling with, you'll make yourself known. You'll, uh, you'll present all of us with that peace that's not of this world. You'll help us to see that your hand is in all things. Every bit of our lives, you are there looking out because you're a good father. You're a grand creator. You are a magnificent God. And you're in our lives and you know us. You care about us. You're cognizant of us and our needs and you're with us. And we pray that we will walk in faith with these realizations. And so we seek you now in Jesus' name. Amen.